5, showed, and left him stunned upon the field, thus I soared, I stood upon the seashore, and with a frail reed in my hand, I rode in the sand, my country, I love thee, a mad wave came rushing by and wiped out the fair impression, cruel wave, treacherous sand, frail reed, I said, I hate ye I'll trust ye no more, but with a giant's arm, I'll reach to the coast of Norway, and pluck its tallest pine, and dip it in the crater of Vesuvius, and write upon the burnished heavens, my country, I love thee, and I'd like to see any darn wave rub that out, between the long intervals of argument my speech grinned with anecdotes like a basket full of possum heads, the fiddle played its part, the people did the rest, and I carved upon the tombstone of the demolished knight these tender words, tread softly round the sacred heap, it guards ambition's restless sleep, whose greed for place ne'er did forsake him, don't mention office, or you'll wake him, I reached the goal of my visions and dreams under that colossal dome whose splendors are shadowed in the broad river that flows by the shrine of Mount Vernon, I sat amid the confusion and uproar of the parliamentary struggles of the lower branch of the Congress of the United States, Sunset, Cox, with his beams of wit and humor, convulsed the house and shook the galleries, Alexander Stevens, one of the last tottering monuments of the glory of the Old South, still lingering on the floor, where, in bygone years the battles of his vigorous manhood were fought, I saw in the Senate an assemblage of the grandest men since the days of Webster and Clay, Conkling, the intellectual titan, the Apollo of manly form and grace, thundered there, the plumed knight, that grand incarnation of mind and magnetism, was at the zenith of his glory, Edmonds, and Zach Chandler, and the brilliant and learned jurist, Matt, Carpenter, were there, Thurman the noblest Roman of them all, was there with his famous bandana handkerchief, the immortal Ben Hill, the idol of the South, and Lamar, the gifted orator and highest type of Southern chivalry were there, Garland, and Morgan, and Harris, and Coke, were there, and Beck with his sledgehammer intellect, it was an arena of opposing gladiators more magnificent and majestic than was ever witnessed in the palmiest days of the Roman Empire. There were giants in the Senate in those days, and when they clashed shields and measured swords in debate, the capital trembled and the nation thrilled in every nerve. But how like the ocean's ebb and flow are the restless tides of politics. These scenes of grandeur and glory soon dissolved from my view like a dream. I saved the country for only two short years. My competitor proved a lively corpse. He burst forth from the tomb like a locust from its shell, and came buzzing to the national capital with war on his wings. I went buzzing back to the mountains to dream again under the sycamores, and there a new ambition was kindled in my soul. A new vision opened before me. I saw another capital rise on the bank of the Cumberland, overshadowing the tomb of Polk and close by the hermitage where reposes the sacred dust of Andrew Jackson and I thought if I could only reach the exalted position of governor of the old, volunteer state, I would then have gained the sum of life's honors and happiness. But lo! Another son of my father and mother was dreaming there under the same old sycamore. We had dreamed together in the same trundle bed and often kicked each other out. Together we had seen visions of pumpkin pie and pulled hair for the biggest slice. Together we had smoked the first cigar and together learned to play the fiddle. But now the dreams of our manhood clashed. Relentless fate had decreed that York must contend with Lancaster in the War of the Roses, and with flushed cheeks and throbbing hearts we eagerly entered the field, his shield bearing the red rose, mine the white. It was a contest of principles, free from the wormwood and call of personalities, and when the multitude of partisans gathered at the Hustings, a white rose on every democratic bosom, 
a red rose on every Republican breast. In the midst of a wilderness of flowers there was many a tilt and many a loud heza. But when the clouds of war had cleared away, I looked upon the drooping red rose on the bosom of the vanquished knight, and thought of the first speech my mother ever taught me, man's a vapor full of woes, cuts a caper down he goes, the white rose triumphed, but the shadow is fairer than the substance, the pathway of ambition is marked at every mile with the grave of some sweet pleasure slain by the hand of sacrifice, it bristles with thorns planted by the fingers of envy and hate, and as we climb the rugged heights, behind us lie our bloody footprints, before us tower still greater heights, scarred by tempests and wrapped in eternal snow, like the Edelweiss of the Alps, ambition's pleasures bloom in the chill air of perpetual frost, and he who reaches the summit will look down with longing eyes, on the humbler plain of life below and wish his feet had never wandered from its warmer sunshine and sweeter flowers, from the caveman to the kissophone, but let us not forget that it is better for us, and better for the world, that we dream, and that we tread the thorny paths, and climb the weary steeps, and leave our bloody tracks behind in the pursuit of our dreams, for in their extravagant conceptions lie the germs of human government, and invention, and discovery, and from their mysterious vagaries spring the motive power of the world's progress, our civilization is the evolution of dreams, the rude tribes of primeval men dwelt in caves until some unwashed savage dreamed that damp caverns and unholy smells were not in accord with the principles of hygiene, it dawned upon his mighty intellect that one flat stone would lie on top of another, and that a little mud, aided by Sir Isaac Newton's law of gravitation, would hold them together, and that walls could be built in the form of a quadrangle. Here was the birth of architecture, and thus, from the magical dreams of the Sanazolum barbarian was evolved the home, the best and sweetest evolution of man's civilization. John Howard Payne touched the tenderest chord that vibrates in the great heart of all humankind when he gave to immortality his song of home, sweet home, and thank God, the grand mansions and palaces of the rich do not hold all the happiness and nobility of this world. There are millions of humble cottages where virtue resides in the warmth and purity of vestal fires, and where contentment dwells like perpetual summer. The Antediluvians plowed with a forked stick, with one prong for the beam and the other for the scratcher, and the plowboy and his sleepy ox had no choice of prongs to hitch to. It was all the same to Adam whether Buck was yoked to the beam or the scratcher. But some noble Cincinnatus dreamed of the burnished plowshare, genius wrought his dream into steel and now the polished Oliver Chill slices the earth like a hog knife plowing a field of Jersey butter, and the modern gang plow, bearing upon its wheels the gloved and umbrellaed leader of the populist party, plows up the whole face of the earth in a single day. What a wonderful workshop is the brain of man, its noiseless machinery cuts, and carves, and molds, in the imponderable material of ideas. It works its endless miracles through the brawny arm of labor, and the deft fingers of skill, and the world moves forward by its magic. Aladdin rubbed his lamp and the shadowy genii of fable performed impossible wonders. The dreamer of today rubs his fingers through his hair and the genii of his intellect work miracles which eclipse the most extravagant fantasies of the Arabian Nights. A dreamer saw the imprisoned vapor throw open the lid of a tea kettle, and lo! A steam engine came puffing from his brain and now many a huge monster of Corliss, beautiful as a vision of Archimedes and smooth in movement as a wheeling planet, sends its thrill of life and power through mammoth plants of humming machinery, the fiery courser of the steel-bound track shoots over hill and plain, like a midnight meteor through the fields of heaven, outstripping the wind, a dreamer carried about in his brain a great leviathan, it was launched upon the billows, 
and like some colossal swan the palatial steamship now sweeps in majesty through the blue wastes of old ocean. 600 years before Christ, some old Greek discovered electricity by rubbing a piece of ember, and enabled to grasp the mystery. He called it soul. His discovery slept for more than 2,000 years until it awoke in the dreams of Galvani, and vaulted, and Benjamin Franklin. In the morning of the 19th century the sculptor and scientist, Morse, saw in his dreams, phantom lightnings leap across continents, and oceans, and felt the pulse of thunder beat as it came bounding over threads of iron that girdled the earth. In each throb he read a human thought. The electric telegraph emerged from his brain, like Minerva from the brow of Jove, and the world received a fresh baptism of light and glory. In a few more years we will step over the threshold of the 20th century. What greater wonders will the dreamers yet unfold? It may be that another magician, greater even than Edison, the Wizard of Menlo Park, will rise up and coax the very laws of nature into easy compliance with his unheard of dreams. I think he will construct an electric railway in the form of a huge tube, and call it the Electroscoot, and passengers will enter it in New York and touch a button and arrive in San Francisco two hours before they started. I think a new discovery will be made by which the young man of the future may stand at his kissophone in New York, and kiss his sweetheart in Chicago with all the delightful sensations of the aforesaid and the same. I think some Liebig will reduce foods to their last analyses, and by an ultimate concentration of their elements, will enable the man of the future to carry a year's provisions in his vest pocket. The sucking dude will store his rations in the head of his cane, and the commissary department of the whole army will consist of a mule and a pair of saddlebags. A train load of cabbage will be transported in a sardine box, and a thousand fat Texas cattle in an oyster can. Power will be condensed from a 40-horse engine to a quart cup. Wagons will roll by the power in their axles, and the cushions of our buggies will cover the force that propels them. The armies of the future will fight with chain lightning, and the battlefield will become so hot and unhealthy that, he who fights and runs away will never fight another day. Some dreaming Icarus will perfect the flying machine, and upon the aluminium wings of the swift Pegasus of the air the Light Heart Society girl will sail among the stars, and, behind some dark cloud, where no one's allowed. Make love to the man in the moon. The rainbow will be converted into a ferris wheel. All men will be bald-headed. The women will run the government and then I think the end of time will be near at hand. Dreams. I heard a song of love. And tenderness. And sadness. And beauty. Sweeter than the song of a nightingale. It was breathed from the soul of Robert Burns. I heard a song of deepest passion surging like the tempest-tossed waves of the sea. It was the restless spirit of Lord Byron. I heard a mournful melody of despairing love, full of that wild, mad, hopeless longing of a bereaved soul which the midnight raven mocked at with that bitterest of all words, nevermore. It was the weird threnody of the brilliant, but they'll start Poe, who, like a meteor, blazed but for a moment, dazzling a hemisphere, and then went out forever in the darkness of death. Then I was exalted, and lifted into the serene sunlight of peace, as I listened to the spirit of faith. Pouring out in the songs of our own immortal Longfellow, with Milton I walked the scented aisles of long-lost paradise, and caught the odor of its bloom, and the swell of its music. He led me through its rose breaks, and under the vermilion and flame of its orchids and honeysuckles, down to the margin of the limpid river, where the water lily slept in fadeless beauty, and the lotus nodded to the rippling waves, and there, under a bright larch of orange blossoms, cordoned by palms and many-colored flowers. I saw a vision of bliss and beauty from which Satan turned away with an envy that stabbed him with pangs and felt before in hell, 
it was Earth's first vision of wedded love, but the horizon of Shakespeare was broader than them all. There is no depth which he has not sounded, no height which he has not measured. He walked in the gardens of the intellectual gods and gathered sweets for the soul from a thousand in withering flowers. He caught music from the spheres, and beauty from ten thousand fields of light. His brain was a mighty loom, his genius gathered and classified, his imagination spun and wove, the flying shell of his fancy delivered to the warp of wisdom and philosophy the shining threads spun from the fibers of human hearts and human experience, and with his wondrous woof of pictured tapestries, he clothed all thought in the bridal robes of immortality, his mind was a resistless flood that deluged the world of literature with its glory, the succeeding poets are but survivors as by the ark, and, like the ancient dove, they gather and weave into garlands only the flotsam of beauty which floats on the bosom of the Shakespearean flood. Oh, Shakespeare, archangel of poetry, the light from thy wings drowns the stars and flashes thy glory on the civilizations of the whole world, and wearied, and fettered, and watched, and confident, be my spirit like thee, in the world of the mind, no leaning for earth ear to weary its flight, but fresh as thy pinions in regions of light. All honor to the poets and philosophers and painters and sculptors and musicians of the world. They are its honeybees, its songbirds, its carrier doves, its ministering angels, visions of departed glory. I walked with Gibbon and Hume, through the somber halls of the past, and caught visions of the glory of the classic republics and empires that flourished long ago, and whose very dust is still eloquent with the story of departed greatness. The spirit of genius lingers there still like the fragrance of roses faded and gone. I thought I heard the harp of Pinder, and the impassioned song of the dark-ed Sappho. I thought I heard the lofty epic of the blind Homer, rushing on in the red tide of battle, and the divine Plato discoursing like an oracle in his academic shades. The canvas spoke and the marble breathed when Apelles painted and Phidias carved. I stood with Michelangelo and saw him chisel his dreams from the marble. I saw Raphael spread his visions of beauty in immortal colors. I sat under the spirit of Paganini's power. The flow of his melody turned the very air into music. I thought I was in the presence of divinity as I listened to the warbles, and murmurs, and the ebb and flow of the silver tides, from his violin. And I said, music is the dearest gift of God to man. The sea, the forest, the field, and the meadow, are the very fountainheads of music. I believe that Mozart, and Mendelssohn, and Schubert, and Verdi, and all the great masters, caught their sweetest dreams from nature's musicians, I think their richest airs of mirth, and gladness, and joy, were stolen from the purling rivulet and the rippling river, I believe their grandest inspirations were born of the tempest, and the thunder, and the rolling billows of the angry ocean, nature's musicians, I sat on the grassy brink of a mountain stream in the gathering twilight of evening, the shadowy woodlands around me became a great theater, the green sward before me was its stage, the tinkling bell of a passing herd rang up the curtain, and I sat there all alone in the hush of the dying day and listened to a concert of nature's musicians who sing as God hath taught them to sing. The first singer that entered my stage was Senior Grasshopper. He mounted a mullen leaf and sang, and sang, and sang, until Professor Turkey Gobbler slipped up behind him with open mouth, and Senior Grasshopper vanished from the footlights forevermore. And as Professor Turkey Gobbler strutted off my stage with a merry gobble, the orchestra opened before me with a flourish of trumpets, the katydid led off with a trombone solo, the cricket chimed in with his E-flat cornet, the bumblebee played on his violoncello, and the jaybird laughed with his piccolo. The music rose to grandeur with the deep bass horn of the big black beetle, 
The mockingbird's flute brought me to tears of rapture, and the screech owl's fife made me want to fight. The tree frog blew his alto horn, the jar fly clashed his tinkling cymbals, the woodpecker rattled his caldrum, and the locust jingled his tambourine. The music rolled along like a sparkling river in sweet accompaniment with the oriole's leading violin, but it suddenly hushed when I heard a ripple of laughter among the hollyhocks before the door of a happy country home. I saw a youth standing there in the shadows with his arm around something and holding his sweetheart's hand in his. He bent forward, lip met lip, and there was an explosion like the squeak of a new boot. The lassie vanished into the cottage, the lad vanished over the hill, and as he vanished he swung his head in the shadows and sang back to her his happy love song. Did you never hear a mountain love song? This is the song he sang, oh. When she saw me coming she wrung her hands and cried. She said I was the prettiest thing that ever lived or died. Oh. Run along home Miss Nancy. Get along home Miss Nancy. Run along home Miss Nancy. Down and rock in him. The birds inclined their heads to listen to his song as it died away on the drowsy summer air. That night I slept in a mansion. But I closed my eyes on garnished rooms to dream of meadows and clover blooms, and love among the hollyhocks. And while I dreamed I was serenaded by a band of mosquitoes. This is the song they sang, Hush my dear, lie still and slumber, holy angels guard thy bed, heavenly skeeters without number buzzing round your old bald head. Preacher's paradise. There is no land on earth which has produced such quaint and curious characters as the great mountainous regions of the south and yet no country has produced nobler or brainier men. When I was a barefoot boy my grandfather's old grist mill was the mecca of the mountaineers. They gathered there on the rainy days to talk politics and religion, and to drink, mountain, do and fight. Adam Weezer was a tall, spindle-shanked old settler as dark as an Indian, and he wore a broad, hungry grin that always grew broader at the sight of a fat sheep. The most prominent trait of Adam's character, next to his love of mud, was his bravery. He stood in the mill one day with his empty sack under his arm, as usual, when Bart Lynch, the bully of the mountains, with an eye like a game rooster's, walked up to him and said, Adam, you've been a slanderin' of me, and I'm a gwine to give you a thrashing. He seized Adam by the throat and backed him under the meal spout. Adam opened his mouth to squall and it spouted meal like a whale. He made a search for breath and liberty and tossed Bart away like a feather. Then he shot out of the mill door like a rocket leaving his old battered plug hat and one prong of his coat tail in the hands of the enemy. He ran through the creek and knocked it dry as he went. He made a beeline for my grandfather's house, a quarter of a mile away. On the hill, he burst into the sitting room, covered with meal and panting like a bellowsed horse, frightening my grandmother almost into hysterics. The old lady screamed and shouted, What in the world is the matter? Adam? Adam replied, that their dern Bart Lynch is down yander a tryin' to raise a fess with me. But every dog has his day. Brother Billy Patterson preached from the door of the mill on the following Sunday. It was his first sermon in that neck of the woods, and he began his ministrations with a powerful discourse, hurling his anathemas against Satan and sin and every kind of wickedness. He denounced whiskey. He branded the bully as a brute and immoral coward, and personated Bart, having witnessed his battle with Adam. This was too much for the champion. He resolved to thrash Brother Patterson, and in a few days they met at the mill. Bart squared himself and said, Parson, you had your turn last Sunday, it's mine today. Pull off that broadcloth and take your medicine. I'm a gwine to suck the marrow out and lay bones o' yearn. The pious preacher pleaded for peace, but without avail. At last he said, Then, 
If nothing but a fight will satisfy you, will you allow me to kneel down and say my prayer before we fight? Oh yes, that's all right parson, said Bart, but cut your prayer short, for I'm a going to give you a good sound thrashing. The preacher knelt and thus began to pray, Oh Lord, thou knowest that when I killed Bill Cummings, and John Brown, and Jerry Smith, and Levi Bottles, that I did it in self-defense, thou knowest, oh Lord, that when I cut the heart out of young Slider, and strewed the ground with the brains of Patty Miles, that it was forced upon me, and that I did it in great agony of soul, and now, oh Lord, I am about to be forced to put in his coffin, this poor miserable wretch, who has attacked me here today, oh Lord, have mercy upon his soul and take care of his helpless widow and orphans when he is gone and he arose wetting his knife on his shoe sole, singing, Hark! From the tomb a doleful sound, mine ears attend the cry, but when he looked around, Bart was gone, there was nothing in sight but a little cloud of dust far up the road, following in the wake of the vanishing champion, Brother ASDAP and the trumpet, during the great revival which followed Brother Patterson's first sermon and effective prayer, the hour for the old-fashioned Methodist love feast arrived, old Brother Estep, in his enthusiasm on such occasions sometimes, stretched his blanket, it was his glory to get up a sensation among the brethren, he rose and said, brethren, while I was a-walkin' in my garden late yesterday evening, a-meditatin' on the final end of the world, I looked up, and I see Gabriel raise his silver trumpet, which was about fifty foot long, to his blazon lips, and I heard him give it a toot that knocked me into the fence corner and shut the very taters out in the ground, toot, toot, said the old parson, don't talk that way in this meeting, we all know you didn't hear Gabriel blow his trumpet, the old man's wife jumped to her feet to help her husband out, and said, now parson, you sat down there, don't you dispute John's word that away he mount a hern a toot or two, w-a and peer jaw that the jollification, the sideboard of those good old times would have thrown the prohibition candidate of today into spasms, it sparkled with cut glass decanters full of the juices of corn, and rye and Apple, the old squire of the mill, the estrict, had as many sweet, buzzing friends as any flower garden or cider press in Christendom, the most industrious be that sucked at the squire's sideboard was old, Wamper jaw, his mouth reached from ear to ear, and was inlaid with huge gums as red as vermilion, and when he laughed it had the appearance of lightning, on the triumphant day of the squire's re-election to his great office, when everything was lovely and, the goose hung high, he was surrounded by a large crowd of his fellow citizens, and Thomas Jefferson, in his palmiest days, never looked grander than did the squire on this occasion. He was attired in his best suit of homespun, the choicest product of his wife's dipod. His immense vest with its broad luminous stripes, checked the rotundity of his ample stomach like the lines of latitude and longitude, and resembled the half-finished map of the United States. His blue jeans coat covered his body as the waters cover the face of the great deep and its huge collar encircled the back of his head like the belts of light around a planet. The squire was regaling his friends with his latest side-splitting jokes. Old, Wamper Jaw threw himself back in his chair and exploded with peal after peal of laughter. But suddenly he looked around and said, General Tillman, my jaws flew out and jint. His comrades seized him and pulled him all over the yard trying to get it back. Finally old, Wamper Jaw mounted his mule, and with pounding heels, rode, like Tam O'Shanter, to the nearest doctor who lived two miles away. The doctor gave his jaw a mysterious yank and it popped back into socket. Wamper Jaw rushed back to join in the festivities at the squire's, 
The glasses were filled again, another side-splitting joke was told, another peal of laughter went round, when Wamper Joff threw his hand to his face and said, General Tillman, she's out again. There was another hasty ride for the doctor, but in the years that followed, Wamper Joff was never known to laugh aloud. On the most hilarious occasions he merely showed his gums, the tinnambulation of the dinner bells. How many millions dream on the lowest planes of life. How few ever reach the highest and like stars of the first magnitude, shed their light upon the pathway of the marching centuries. What multitudes there are whose horizons are lighted with visions and dreams of the flesh pots and soup bowls, whose false taffian aspirations never rise above the fat things of the surf, and whose ear flaps are forever inclined forward, listening for the dinner bells, the bells, bells, bells. What a world of pleasure their harmony foretells. The bells, 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 bells. The tinnambulation of the dinner bells. In my native mountains there once lived one of these old gluttonous dreamers. I think he was the champion eater of the world. Many a time I have seen him at my grandfather's table. And the vines and batter cakes vanished like the baseless fabric of a vision. He left not a wreck behind. But one day... In the varsity of his shark-like appetite, he unfortunately undertook too large a contract for the retirement of an immense slice of ham. It scraped its way down his rebellious esophagus for about two inches, and lodged as tightly as a bullet in a rusty gun. His prodigious Adam's apple suddenly shot up to his chin, his eyes protruded, and his purple neck craned and shortened by turns, like a trombone in full blast. He scrambled from the table and pranced about the room like a horse with blind staggers. My grandfather sprang at him and dealt him blow after blow in the back, which sounded like the blows of a mallet on a dried hide, but the ham wouldn't budge. The old man ran out into the yard and seized a plank about three feet long, and rushed into the room with it drawn. Now William, said he, get down on your all fours. William got down. Now William, when I hit, you swallow. He hit, and it popped like a Winchester rifle. William shot into the corner of the room like a shell from a mortar but in a moment he was seated at his place at the table again, with a broad grin on his face. Is it down William? shouted the old man. Yes, Mr. Haynes, the darn thing's gone. Please pass the ham. I thought how vividly that old glutton illustrated the fools who, in their effort to gulp down the sensual pleasures of this world, choke the soul, and nothing but the clapboard of hard experience, while Maladon, can dislodge the ham, and restore the equilibrium. Phantoms of the wine cup. A little below the glutton lies the plain of the drunkard whose visions and dreams are bounded by the horizon of a still tub. A little wine for the stomach's sake is good, but in the trembling hand of a drunkard, every crimson drop that glows in the cup is crushed from the roses that once bloomed on the cheeks of some helpless woman. Every phantom of beauty that dances in it is a devil, and yet, millions quaff, and with a hideous laugh, go staggering to the grave. The missing link. A little below the plane of the drunkard is the dude, that missing link between monkey and man, whose dream of happiness is a single eyeglass, a kangaroo strut, and three hours of conversation without a sensible sentence, whose only conception of life is to splurge, and flirt, and spend his father's fortune. Out of the fullness of his heart his mouth singed. I'm a dandy, I'm a swell, just from college, can't you tell? I'm the beau of every bell, I'm the swellest of the swell, I'm the king of all the balls. I'm a prince in banquet halls. My daddy's rich. They know it well. I'm the swellest of the swell. Nightmare. And happily for us all. In the world of visions and dreams. There is a dark side to human life. 
here have been dreamed out all the crimes which have steeped our race in shame since the expulsion from Eden, and all the wars that have cursed mankind since the birth of history. Alexander the Great was a monster whose sword drank the blood of a conquered world. Julius Caesar marched his invincible armies, like juggernauts, over the necks of fallen nations. Napoleon Bonaparte rose with the morning of the 19th century, and stood, like some frightful comet, on its troubled horizon, distraught with the dream of conquest and empire. He hovered like a god on the verge of battle. Kings and emperors stood aghast. The son of Austerlitz was the rising sun of his glory and power, but it went down, veiled in the dark clouds of Waterloo, and Napoleon the Great, and crowned, and throned and stunned by the dreadful shock that annihilated the Grand Army and the Old Guard, wandered aimlessly about on the lost field, in the gloom that called a fallen empire, as Hugo describes him, the somnambulist of a vast, shattered dream, infidelity, it is in the desert of evil, where virtue trembles to tread, where hope falters, and where faith is crucified, that the infidel dreams, to him, all there is of heaven is bounded by this little span of life, all there is of pleasure and love is circumscribed by a few fleeting years, all there is of beauty is mortal, all there is of intelligence and wisdom is in the human brain, all there is of mystery and infinity is fathomable by human reason, and all there is of virtue is measured by the relations of man to man, to him, all must end in the tongueless silence of the dreamless dust, and all that lies beyond the grave is a voiceless shore and a starless sky, to him, there are no prints of deathless feet on its echoless sands, no thrill of immortal music in its joyless air. He has lost his god, and like some fallen seraph flying in rayless night, he gropes his way on flagging pinions, searching for light w -H -er.